You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the School of History at University College Dublin. Subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, the first of two keynote lectures from the Military Welfare History Network 2023 conference, which took place in UCD in July. The conference was supported by several organisations and individuals. These were Professor Adele Lendenmeyer, Dr. Michael Tyquin, the Centre for Military, War and Society Studies at the University of Kansas, courtesy of the Centre Director, Professor Beth Bailey, Society for the History of War, Society for the Social History of Medicine, and UCD Centre for War Studies. The conference was organised by Dr. Paul Huddy, who told me about the network. Today is the first in-person meeting of the Military Welfare History Network. It is an international collective of scholars of 166 in number, meeting together to discuss all manner of uh, historical situations, provisions, etc. related to the military community. So that's serving personnel and their families. First started in February 2019 and have grown steadily since then. This is the first in-person meeting of the membership. Uh, I just say that anyone who is doing any form of military welfare history, be that related to service personnel, families or anything like that related to all matters of medical provision or social policy, regardless of chronology or geographical location, uh, to get in touch with the Military Welfare History Network and just Google us online. This episode features the first keynote by Dr Matthew Neufeld from the University of Saskatchewan, who presented on Early Modern Naval Healthcare in England, 1650 to 1750. I'm going to start, this will be a presentation in three parts. The, the, fir- the first and the third will be at sort of the level of 35,000 feet. And then the middle two bits, or the middle bit, will be at much closer to ground level. So a more finely detailed discussion of an important transformation. So, naval health care, why care about it? Well, the history of naval health care in early modern England is a story of the changing relationship between the Royal Navy and people willing to look after sick and injured sailors. From roughly 1650 to 1700, naval health care onshore was characterized predominantly by the Royal Navy's need to find sufficient spaces for care and people to perform care work. Since the Navy did not possess its own places to care for seamen, nor employ its own cohort of care workers, It looked to the people of coastal communities to provide both spaces and people for seamen's treatment and recovery. In attempting to find care on shore, the Navy was in an important sense dependent on local people. Moreover, the Navy's relative financial weakness meant that it often struggled mightily to find care space and care workers. Then, from the beginning of the 18th century, Naval officials sought at select ports to secure care at spaces operated by hospital contractors, while continuing to find sufficient spaces for care and care workers in what were called town quarters, namely pubs and private houses. This shift that meant that at certain ports, the Navy was less dependent on local people's willingness to provide the space and labor needed to heal sailors. The shift in the Navy's emphasis from finding to securing care happened when newly available financial resources matched an ambition 
to extend command and control over care work and care spaces. Then finally, from 1744, the Navy undertook to erect permanent sites for orderly care for sick and injured sailors at Portsmouth and Plymouth in the form of permanent naval hospitals. Ordered care demanded spaces that fostered healing and recovery while also retaining sailors for naval service. It also meant naval oversight of the conduct of both care workers and sailors in care to expedite the sailors' return to active duty. So relationships between ordinary people and naval officials structured the system of care for sick and injured sailors. A key factor driving structural changes to naval health care was the level of trust between naval officials and the people of coastal communities, especially the women who typically oversaw care spaces and engaged in care work. During the late 17th century, representatives of the Navy believed that the care offered in town quarters worked well most of the time. Then in 1703, and again in 1744, particular officials within the Navy lost faith in the people's capacity to provide good care for sailors. In the first instance, it was the commissioners for sick and wounded seamen who distrusted the capacity of care providers, they called landladies, to attend adequately to the needs of sailors. As a result, private contract hospitals at major ports were incorporated into the system of naval health care. In the second instance, in the 1740s, the Board of Admiralty distrusted the willingness of nurses to keep order at Gosport's private contract hospital. Consequently, permanent naval hospitals were later constructed at Portsmouth and Plymouth. At these two institutions, the naval hospitals, the Navy assumed greater control over the space where care work happened and could monitor the conduct of care workers and sailors. Thanks to these structural changes, by the beginning of the Seven Years' War in 1754, the Royal Navy had a healthcare system that was beginning to assume the form that endured well into the 20th century. Naval healthcare in England then emerged in a way that afforded officials the aspiration to pursue a braided set of ambitious objectives, saving seamen's lives, saving money, and keeping men in the sea service all at the same time. Over time, these objectives, what I call the preservative ethos of early modern naval health care, were pursued through ever more ordered care. Direct oversight of the spaces where men could rest and recover their help while receiving the attention of care workers. The aim was to ensure that the sailors and care workers comported themselves in ways that aligned with the Navy's ongoing need for manpower. Thus, among the possibilities or potentialities of early modern naval health care lay a crucial ambition to exercise authority and control over an aspect of the social world. In a word, to become modern. Naval health care's emergence did not fordain its modernization. But, I would argue, without the preservative ethos sitting within its core, the system's eventual modernization is unimaginable. For this morning's talk, I will focus on the late 1740s, actually mid to late 1740s, to show both the centrality of the relationship between the Navy and local care workers for early modern naval health care's transformation and the high level of care provided to seamen by ordinary people of coastal communities. The decision in 1744 to build Hasler Naval Hospital resulted not from a historical or medical necessity, 
but rather from the rhetorical mobilization of an acute breakdown of orderly care at Gosport Contract Hospital, also known as Fortin Naval Hospital for Sailors. Blame for the breakdown of order at Fortin fell unfairly on its largely female workforce, who were regarded also unfairly as more prone to disorder than men. Greater naval oversight of care work would reduce the chances of disorderly conduct at naval hospitals by both patients and nurses. Nonetheless, onshore care for sailors after 1745 reached its peak performance. This accomplishment emerged from the potent combination of financial stability and from due care offered by people at the ports, especially the women working as care providers and care workers. Thus, I guess one of my main takeaways is that female labor both underpinned early modern naval health care and played a significant, indeed perhaps a catalytic role, in its transformation. First, some definitions. Madeleine Bunting was not wrong recently in her book to characterize care work, or what she calls a labor of love, as, quote, dark matter. It is everywhere and practically invisible, at least in many of the sources. Yet its existence cannot be gainsaid. Care work means attending to a human need in a direct way that usually requires physical contact. A healthcare system is one in which people attempt through patterned interactions to match needs for healing and attention with people capacitated to provide them. A healthcare system cannot function without care work and care workers. Today, care work involves direct and intimate labor focused on the body and the body's immediate environment. Care work may or may not be done at home. It may or may not be paid. During the late medieval and early modern periods, care Caring for somebody explicitly involved both corporeal and spiritual labor, both body work and attending to the whole person as a person. Care, care work directed at sick and injured sailors concerned the provision of clean of a bed, clean bedding, regular washing, laundry, and food and drink. In other words, proper rest, nourishment, and cleanliness were central to early modern naval health care. Disorders and due care for sailors during the war against King George in the 1740s. Hasler Naval Hospital arose from the Royal Navy Admiralty's overreaction to an account of disorderly sailors and nurses at Gosport's Fortin Private Contract Hospital. The situation at Fortin Hospital, discovered by the Admiralty, was then linked to the broader social problem of excessive plebeian consumption of spirituous liquors. The Admiralty's response to disorderly sailors and nurses at Gosport expressed as a concern over the implications of intoxication for sailors' health and the potential loss of naval manpower propelled a proposal to the Privy Council for a permanent naval hospital. The Commissioners for Sick and Wounded Sailors, which was the the body directly responsible for the care of sick and injured sailors for the Navy, was not the one to initiate the reform of management of onshore care. In 1740, for it was the Admiralty. The Admiralty's proposed solution to disorderly conduct at Fortin Private Contract Hospital, a permanent naval hospital run by the Royal Navy, aligned well with a long-standing medical view that disordered conditions were the chief enemy of good health. Consequently, disordered care conditions which threatened the health and even the bare life of sailors in care 
were inextricably obstacles to victory at sea. Both goals, sailors' health and victory, required the appropriate application of constraint, emerging from within a person, otherwise known as self-discipline, and emanating down from the responsible authorities or imputed discipline. Unquestionably, the Admiralty's desire to ensure that care happened in an ordered context derived from the need to retain the productive capacity of sailors, their labor power, to have a reasonable hope of contributing to victory in the war against France. Thus, the Admiralty was concerned about about both the health of its people, as it referred to the sailors, and their ability to serve, upon which the Navy's capacity for force projection at sea crucially relied. The process leading to Gosport's permanent naval hospital, Hasler Naval Hospital, began in the late spring of 1744 with the arrival at the port of Sir Charles Hardy's squadron. In response to an admiralty query concerning the great number of sailors on shore at Gosport, the commissioners for sick and hurt reported on the 20th of June 1744 that there was no greater number than ordinary in care. They assured the Admiralty that there was nothing epidemical or extraordinary that had been discovered in the diseases of the people set on shore from the squadron. The commissioners suggested that the situation of the port was not bad. At that time in June of 1744, there were 1,337 men reported uh, in, on shore and at the Blenheim Hospital ship, and of those over 1,300, over 391 were very ill, 346 were not dangerously ill, and 600 were on recovery. So nothing in the tone or content of the Commissioner's letter to the Admiralty suggested that the situation in Gosport in late June of 1744 was anything disorderly or out of the ordinary. On the 12th day of the following month, in July 1744, the Commissioners sent, as was their practice, one of their numbers to inspect the condition of the private hospitals and the town quarters at the ports along the south coast. In this case, it was Nathaniel Hills, commissioner sent to inspect the hospitals and quarters at Gosport and Plymouth. However, sometime after Hills' departure for Gosport, the commissioners had received a complaint from the port, which they directed him to investigate. The complaint evidently related to, quote, the people's being drunk while at Fortin Hospital which threatened to undermine the foundations for care. Hills visited Gosport's hospital for sailors on the 24th of July in 1744 and then sent a report to his uh, commissioners on the same day. In that report, he proposed what he called a method for remedying the evil, namely the abuses of the people being drunk. Now, whatever that method might have been, the commissioners' minutes do not indicate exactly what it was, nor whether or not they decided to send the proposal up to the Admiralty. I think this is significant because on the very same day of Hill's visit to Fortin Hospital, Vice Admiral William Martin likewise submitted a report of his visiting the same place to Admiral Sir John Belgian. Martin's report was subsequently forwarded to the Admiralty, and its account of disorder there would be crucial for the emergence of Hazard Hospital. Vice Admiral Martin's report, which was dated at the end of July, found that, quote, houses about the hospital and adjoining it are a nest of gin shops, which sell or retail spiritous liquors to the sick, open both day and night. The gate of the hospital remained open at all hours. The only person residing at the hospital who might be expected to 
inspect frequently into the ward to prevent disorders was its contractor, who, according to the Admiral, was afraid to speak to the sailors. Martin stated, quote, the nurses and the men deny that there is any spirit brought into the wards, but it appears by other credible witnesses that they often drink there, which liquors must be brought in by the nurses or such men as are capable of going abroad or both, they being under no restraint. Consequently, nurses and sailors were, according to Vice Admiral Martin, oftentimes drinking and dancing the whole night long on the green without the hospital the contractor not daring to intermeddle. One way to prevent such disorders, Martin wrote, would be to revoke the liquor licenses of the nearby gin shops. Nonetheless, the most effective solution he suggested demanded a place walled in and officers to reside within the hospital. Those officers could monitor the men's movement in and out of the facility while the wall would keep men inside while also keeping out the masters of merchant marine vessels who wanted to encourage the sailors to desert and join the Merchant Marine. Keeping sailors for the Navy would mean locking them down at a naval hospital. For six weeks, no response emerged from the Admiralty Office. Then on the 14th of September, the commissioners received word to attend the Admiralty the following day at noon. On arriving, however, the Lordships respited the matter of the commissioners' attendance. However, the minutes of the Admiralty's meeting that day note that they considered a letter from Admiral Sir John Balchon endorsing and closing a letter from William Martin, giving an account of the irregularities at Gosport Hospital. They then resolved to send a memo to the King proposing to erect hospitals at Chatham, Portsmouth and Plymouth for the reception of sick men on shore. Martin's report of disorder at Fortin's private contract hospital folded well into the mid-Georgian political establishment's anxiety over the social, economic and hygienic consequences of excessive gin consumption. The popular abuse of spirits such as gin generated profound public concern over much of the 1730s and 40s. Public figures argued that gin posed a threat to individuals, to their families, public welfare, and even to national security. For example, in early 1743, Lord Hervey told the House of Commons that getting drunk with gin destroyed not only the health and vigor of persons, but also the state, because it prevails among what he called our most necessary and useful sort of people. By this, Hervey meant our poor laborers, who are, he said, the support of our trade, our manufacturers, our riches, nay, and our luxuries too. The vice that was gin would likewise, he noted, destroy our soldiers, and it will destroy our sailors, our seamen, he said. Hervey's fear then seemed to find fulfillment in William Martin's report of the nest of gin retailers surrounding Fortin Hospital. The Admiralty's proposal to construct Royal Hospital for Sailors for Sailors brilliantly deployed the previous July sensational account of drunken disorder at Gosport as proof not of a particular breakdown of order but of systemic failure within the system of naval health care, fatal flaws within the system, in other words. It began with a reminder of a memo that they had sent to the Privy Council in 1741 asking for Royal Naval Hospitals, which had not been accepted. The next sentence implied that the previous proposal's failure and the present want of naval hospitals seriously compromised the Navy's performance. The Admiralty claimed that it was their duty, considering the Navy's great suffering for the loss of sailors either by death or desertion, to renew their application for naval hospitals. 
to concretize or concretize the painful manpower losses they were experiencing. The mem- memo noted the frequent complaints of great disorders and irregularities committed at the place where the sick men are lodged near Gosport, and directed the Privy Council to William Martin's report of the scene of drunkenness at, in his report. The proposal then turned to list problems inherent in the whole system that damaged the Navy's workforce. The want of Royal Hospitals, the Admiralty's memo asserted, is the reason that lodging, diet, and nursing of sick men is performed by contract, a method liable to abuses that are often fatal to the health of seamen. The existing system for care failed sailors not only in the essential requirements for providing their recovery, but also in not providing a structure in which sailors could overcome their lack of self-discipline. The memo asked the king and council to consider the folly of the poor men who intoxicated themselves with strong liquors while at the height of their distempers. They argued that the great numbers that are swept away by such intemperedness and the desertions of great numbers who recover in light of these facts, both compassion to them and the interest of your majesty's service require putting a speedy stop to this pernicious evil. Building a hospital, the Admiralty proposed, was a medical and a moral necessity. The Privy Council received the proposal on the 18th of September. They had a subcommittee study it. They submitted a proposal afterwards supporting the idea of naval hospitals. The subcommittee said that a royal hospital built at Plymouth for sailors would constitute a real service in preserving the health of seamen. And on the 7th of November, the king registered his acceptance of the committee's advice and the Navy would get a permanent naval hospital at Portsmouth. So the Admiralty under the Earl of Winchelsea at the end of 1744 pitched what was a problem in the conduct of some men and some nurses as evidence of problematic widespread disorder within on-care shore in total, for which a permanent naval hospital would be the solution. By contrast, I think the sick and hurt board had not appeared especially concerned about the state of care at either the hospital or the sick quarters at Gosport in their correspondence with the Admiralty in the summer of 1744. Moreover, the fact that the commissioners appear not to have sent up to the Admiralty uh, their member Nathaniel Hill's plan to deal with the abuse of spiritus liquors would be consistent with their more relaxed appraisal of conditions for the sick and injured men at the biggest site for care for sailors in the country. The commissioners did not oppose the idea that permanent naval hospitals could serve as a mode of improving care, but neither did they think that such an institution was necessary to help sailors recover their health, return them to active service, and thus contribute to the success of the Royal Navy. Town quarters and private contract hospitals could and did act as appropriate supplements or could act as appropriate places for men's recovery on shore. The Admiralty's aim to constrain sick and injured sailors within a walled enclosure to promote their health connects with other efforts by contemporary European governments to promote healthy habits, healthy conduct among their subjects, understood as biological entities. This kind of biopolitics, to use a term borrowed from scholarship focused on the history of state formation and governmental power, made sense given the fact that excessive gin consumption truly did ruin the health of already weakened sailors. 
Incapacitated and dead sailors were obviously of no use to the Navy. Gender was another crucial factor in the decision to build Hasler Hospital. Martin's report from Gosport mentioned nurses smuggling liquor, getting drunk, and dancing with their patients on the green. Concerns about inadequately supervised female laborers as a cause of disorder mapped closely onto the broader fears of unreason that were often unfairly gendered female. However, it was also the case that nurses were known on occasion to supply sailors in care with alcohol. The seventh article of the general instructions for the commissioners for sick and hurt sailors required the immediate dismissal of a nurse to, found to have brought liquor to men under care. Whether that happened at Gosport in the summer of 1744 was a matter, crucially, of whose testimony from those working and recovering at Fortin Hospital, Vice Admiral Martin trusted. Evidently, he chose to believe the testimony of unnamed sources instead of the nurses and the sailors themselves. Martin's distrust of the hospital's nurses went a long way towards shaping his sense of who was to blame for the disorders there and what was needed to fix them. In a walled-off Royal Naval Hospital, both nurses and sailors would be subject to closer supervision, and there would be, at least in theory, fewer chances to smuggle in liquor, fewer chances to desert, and fewer chances to cavort. The Royal Hospital was thus in part an answer to a perceived systemic labor problem at contract hospitals, the untrustworthiness of some female care workers in the provision of ordered care. Finally, it should be noted that without a strong fiscal base and financially powerful constituencies, the Admiralty's proposal for a large permanent hospital would not have been realized. The fact that the Ministry of Lord Carteret could contemplate in the middle of an enormously expensive war splashing out tens of thousands of pounds for a massive building whose rationale could vanish within months should peace result from a surprise defeat or a diplomatic revolution is yet another testament to the awesome capacity of Georgian Britain's fiscal state. That state could spend money on war and development, or both at once, thanks to a powerful blend of taxing and borrowing prowess. Mid-Georgian Britain could afford a war state that cared for its sailors at a comparatively high level. I'll now turn to discuss briefly the extent to which, from 1744 to 48, the high performance of naval health care depended on female labor. It turns out, in fact, that naval health care on shore, which relied on women to provide or give care for sick and injured seamen, did very well compared to all other wars beginning in, if you look from the 1650s. For example, in the spring of 1746, the majority of quarterers, that is, people who provided care space, at three communities in Kent, the towns of Woolwich, Deal, and Sheerness, were women. Of the 35 sick quarterers at Gosport that Commissioner Hills visited in the spring of 1747, women ran 31, of which the overwhelming majority, 29, gave what Hills classified as good to very good care. Nurses formed the bulk of the workforce at hospitals for sailors. Fairham's Hospital employed up to 12 nurses, twice the number of surgeons. Reports suggested that the contractor hired more or fewer nurses in proportion to those uh, number of sick. And in the future, Hasler Naval Hospital would continue to depend heavily on nurses. The Navy Board envisioned a facility with room for 1,500 sailors needing 105 nurses, roughly one nurse for every 
12 men in care. The future of care work in the Navy's permanent hospital would remain largely female, and Professor Spinney, or yes, Professor Spinney has shown that in spades in a number of publications. Most female quarterers and most nurses provided very good care by the latter stages of King George's War. Most of what Commissioner Hills discovered during his inspections to coastal communities about sick quarters run by women and about nurses who worked at the hospitals suggests that they were conscientious towards sailors. At Ferrum Hospital in May of 1747, the sailors claimed that the nurses there gave them due attendance. Gosport Hospital nurses took what the sailors called great care of their patients. The men assured Hills that, quote, they do not want for attendance. Some caregivers demonstrated solidarity to each other and their patients. For example, Hills expressed concern about the high ratio of sailors to nurses at the Blenheim hospital ship. There were 20 sailors for every one nurse. But he claimed that when any of the nurses became ill, he found that when any of the nurses became ill, one of the nurses from another ward, whose patients do not want attendance in the night, assists and sits up with those who do. The following year, Hills likewise reported that nurses on the hospital ships gave due attendance to the sailors. Similarly, at the private quarters at Plymouth in the spring of 1746 were reported exceedingly good. The men lodged in the houses told Hills that great care was taken of them by everyone concerned. Great care did not diminish with the return of peace. There were reports from the summer of 1749 from Gosport, which related that the nurses gave due attendance and they, the sailors, wanted nothing necessary for their different distempers, either to eat or to drink. During Great Britain's first war, Georgian Britain's, pardon me, Georgian Britain's first war against France, women constituted most of the people who provided sick quarters to sick and injured sailors. Most care workers in quarters and hospitals were women. Their labor was unquestionably a key factor in the success of naval health care onshore after 1744. So it is more than a little paradoxical that a single report alleging misbehavior of a very few nurses at Fortin Hospital in July of 1744 occasioned such a significant reform of care conditions at Gosport. That report itself relied on the testimony of witnesses who contradicted what the nurses themselves claimed about their role in the incidents of drunken disorder. Because William Martin refused to believe the nurses, the Admiralty could use his report to portray naval health care in crisis and in need of serious transformation. Had the Admiralty not received Martin's report, had they Hill's reports of conditions at the outports and the due attendance provided by most nurses only, Hasler Hospital might have remained a dream until much later in the 18th century. Disorder did not characterize the bulk of naval health care on shore in the late 1740s. The system for care reached its peak level of performance thanks in large measure to female care workers and care providers. In the war's early stages, the Admiralty linked nurses with what was fundamentally wrong with naval health care as they saw it, drunkenly disorder, drunken disorderliness. But in fact, women were responsible for much of what the system did right in the war against France. So the Royal Navy got its first permanent naval hospital in part because of a willful misapprehension about conditions for care and the quality of care workers on shore. So to conclude, back up to 35,000 feet. 
Toward the end of 1762, a commander in the South Hampshire militia and budding essayist named Edward Gibbon recorded in his journal a visit to the hospital at Hasler. He noted that, quote, it is a large, convenient, and plain structure capable upon emergency of holding 2,500 sailors, though it has seldom had more than 1,100. Then, nearly 40 years later, in the early 1790s, two ship's captains and two ship's surgeons visited the sick quarters for sailors at Yarmouth. They found sick and hurt sailors cared for at one principal and two lesser dwelling houses situated in different parts of the town, containing about 150 men. The householders had contracted with the agent for board, lodging, and washing at a rate of six shillings per man per week. The officers deemed two of the houses, one in White Lion Row and the other in Factory Lane, as far too crowded. A Mrs. Robinson operated the former, Anne Briggs operated the latter. These accounts point to seemingly contrasting aspects about naval health care in England in the second half of the 18th century. The first one suggests a rupture. Gibbon's journal entry suggests that by the end of the Seven Years' War, little remained of the early modern system for care that had emerged during the Anglo-Dutch Wars just over a century earlier, where once sailors received care at either a privately contracted hospital or in many local sick quarters, here a large state-funded and state-operated institution provided treatment for thousands of injured and sick sailors. Hasler Naval Hospital, a massive brick structure standing sentinel-like near the entrance of Portsmouth Harbour, concretized the hopes of medical officials who wanted a permanent naval hospital going back to Dr. Daniel Whistler in the 1650s, John Evelyn in the 1660s, and Dr. Richard Lower in the 1690s. The hospital, along with a similar facility erected at Plymouth, remained central to the provision of medical care for Royal Naval Seamen for over two and a half centuries. Thus, an early modern system for care reliant mostly on contractual or informal partnerships between state officials and ordinary people yielded to one centered on massive and bureaucratically organized institutions. By 1760, naval health care had become modern. The second aspect of these two accounts seems to concern continuity. The situation that confronted the officers at Yarmouth during Britain's war with revolutionary France resembled closely what their predecessors faced at coastal communities during the Anglo-Dutch wars. Seamen received care at private sick quarters. Most of the care providers were women who contracted for their services with an agent from the sick and hurt board. The early modern system of naval health care onshore thus continued long after the construction of permanent naval hospitals. Thus, naval health care in England after 1750 relied on both a modern bureaucratic organization and a series of formal and informal contractual agreements between officials and ordinary people. Early modern naval health care did not end with the emergence of permanent naval hospitals for sailors. Moreover, naval health care in England took its modern turn for reasons that were not instrumental alone. What transpired at Gosport in the summer and autumn of 1744 was an opportunistic and emotional response by the Winchelsea Admiralty to a breakdown of discipline among some sailors and some nurses at the contract hospital, stemming from the contractor's failure to limit the sailors' access to hard liquor. Ultimately, Hasler Hospital began because senior Royal Navy officers no longer wanted to collaborate with the people of Gosport over the provision of care for sailors. During the decades following the emergence of naval 
early modern naval health care, officials' willingness to trust sick and injured sailors to spaces run by local people or hospital contractors ratcheted downwards. So in the First Dutch War, and from the First Dutch War until the Glorious Revolution, care for sailors happened at town quarters in coastal communities. And so the core of care happened outside the Navy's immediate domain of authority. Then there was a transition in 1703, and private contract hospitals were erected at certain great ports. However, town quarters continued to provide care for overflow during emergencies. So for roughly the following half century, from 1704, naval health care operated with formally and informally run spaces for care. And then from 1744, the Admiralty managed to convince the king to give the Navy full authority over care conditions, both the space for care and care workers at Portsmouth. A large, a large walled building staffed with naval employees would better uphold discipline by constraining patients and nurses' access to liquor. This was needed, according to the Admiralty, to preserve lives, to save money, and keep the men in service in a much better manner than either the private contract hospital or private quarters. By the 1760s, the system of naval health care contained a large permanent institution, several large contract hospitals, and many town quarters. The latter, the town quarters, which had once been the system's core, were now at the periphery. Over the final third of the 18th century, the centre of naval health care was modern-looking hospitals falling within the Navy's sphere of authority. The shift of naval health care's core from informally operated private contractors to contract hospitals to permanent naval hospitals was not medically or logically necessary, nor was it inevitable. The willingness of naval officers and administrators to entrust sailors' lives to women and men working outside their direct scope of authority drove changes to the naval health care system. Thus, the quality of the relationships between the chief participants in the system, the Navy as consumer and the people as providers of spaces for care and performing care work, propelled naval health care towards greater formalization and institutionalization. In other words, the institutionalization of naval health care was an unintended outcome of the state's contractual and informal relationships with local people. This phenomenon mirrored the pattern that emerged in France as the Bourbon monarchy sought to rationalize the provision of care to the sick poor in the provinces over the classical period. There, the actions of local people modulated a process undertaken for the sake of efficiency and anti-corruption of centralizing hospital services. In England, the reaction of naval officials to local people powered the punctual transformations by which a centralized and rationalized healthcare system for sailors on shore emerged. Naval healthcare relied on a mostly female workforce to an extent not hitherto appreciated by naval historians. Although only traces of the realities of care work survive in the Admiralty Papers and similar archives, sufficient material concerning naval healthcare exists to suggest that high quality and conscientious nursing did not first emerge in the 19th century. Similarly, the Navy's demand for care generated economic opportunities for women in coastal communities. At places like Gosport and Deal, maritime war enhanced the earning potential of women willing to work as care providers and nurses. Indeed, the fiscal naval state's demands advantaged some women in these communities. Mrs. Butcher of Deal, who provided lodging and nursing to sailors during the Second Dutch War. Margaret Hicks of Rochester, 
a quarter of seamen during Queen Anne's War. Jane Norris of Deal, who cared for two sailors in 1747, along with Mrs. Everest, Mary Bailey, Mrs. Weisenburn, Anne Tobin, and over 30 other women listed as sick quarterers at Gosport during the summer of 1747. These were dynamic, enterprising people who would have been who would have had sound reasons, as Gibbon noted, to regret the coming of peace. The importance and limited visibility of care work to the story of naval health care in early modern England is regretful, but it forms one of the histories or this history's most salient connections to a set of pressing problems in the present. What kind of demand, what sort of need is care work expected to meet? Who is best able to meet it and who should be involved in addressing these concerns. Our heightened medical capacity in comparison to our early modern predecessors has not diminished the moral weight and the difficulty of these life and death questions. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the School of History in University College Dublin. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to historyhub.ie.